Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, if you really wanted to, you could get a literature expert all lathered up by whispering just one sentence in his ear. Francis Bacon is the real author of Shakespeare's plays. This is supposedly the big secret behind the greatest writer in the history of the English language. William Shakespeare was a front. The guy who actually wrote all his stuff was Francis Bacon. Now, of course, it's never been proven, but there are people who will arm wrestle you to the death over this subject. Okay, you want to expose another secret? The theories that form the basis of the Da Vinci Code are all fake. The Priory of Sion was a hoax perpetrated by three French guys in the 1950s, and they've all since confessed. And what's more, the Knights Templar didn't discover anything in their diggings in Jerusalem. There's nothing under the floor of Rosslyn Chapel, and there's no hard historical evidence that Jesus Christ married Mary Magdalene, let alone had any children. So, sorry to break it to you, but despite what Dan Brown writes in his book, he was, um, shall we say, misinformed. One more. Name the seven dwarfs. Okay, we have Sneezy, Sleepy, Dopey, Grumpy, Happy, Bashful, and Doc. Did you know that when Walt Disney was writing the movie in the early 1930s that he went through a bunch of names? The dwarfs that we know today are just the ones that made it, the finalists. Snow White almost had to deal with dwarves with names like Hoppy, Dirty, Cranky, Flabby, Dumpy, Hotsy, Chesty, and Bigo Ego. There, I, I, I just spoil it. I I blew some big secrets and debunked some mysteries. And before we get into this show that blows the lid off some secrets in the world of new rock, I've got one more. Do you know how they really get the caramel milk and the caramel milk bar? Actually, it's really... Hey, who are you? No, stop, sir. We can't let you do this. Stop him now. Get him. Get him. No. Hey, hey, no. Hold still, cross. Hey, wait, wait. There's a guy in the booth. Get the guy. Get the guy. Guy in the booth. Go. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Why don't you tell me about the mystery dance? I want to know about the mystery dance. Why don't you show me? Because I tried and I tried and I'm still mystified. I can't do it anymore and I'm not satisfied. I can't do it anymore. Elvis Costello doing the mystery dance from the summer of 1977. Hello, I'm Alan Cross, and this show is going to blow the lid off some secrets and mysteries. Exposés, the stories behind the story, the hidden truth, yada, yada, yada. You're going to hear some stuff about some big new rock and alternative artists. And admittedly, these stories aren't as big as, you know, the Santa Claus and Easter Bunny conspiracy or you know, the revelation that Courtney Love once worked as a stripper. Why? That, that, that's not a secret. No, no, she, she stripped from Seattle to Japan and back. Every, everybody knows that. Oh, sorry. Pardon me if I sullied your image of Courtney Love. I just thought it was... Well, you should get out and read more. Read People Magazine, for God's sake. Jeez. Where was I? Oh, yeah, uh, blowing the doors off some new rock exposés. And since we're already on the subject of Elvis Costello in his first album, let's, 
Let's kind of warm up with him. Back in the day, what was the name of Elvis's crack backup band? So the Attractions, correct. But the Attractions didn't show up until the second album. Who came before? Who was Elvis's backup band for that first record? When Stiff Records signed Elvis, they wanted to get something out in a hurry, but there wasn't enough time to get a real band together. So Jake Riviera, the head of Stiff, found this band and brought him into Pathway Studios to help Elvis with his songs. See, Elvis's demos were all acoustic and some had a bit of a, a, a twang to them. And this group, whose name was Clover, by the way, were instructed to give the track some anger and some energy. It was a quick way to make some cash for this, you know, this poor touring group, even though they had to change their name to The Shamrocks for the official contract paperwork to avoid getting sued by another band called Clover. But anyway, everybody from the group, save for the lead singer, played on Elvis's debut album. And later, after Elvis had auditioned players for a permanent group, Clover went back to the States where they changed their name. They changed their name to Huey Lewis and the News. You know, these guys. That's right. One of the great punk rock records of the 1970s was performed by the group that would eventually become Huey Lewis and the News. Elvis Costello from his first album, My Aim is True, a record that could not have been made without the help from, say it again, Huey Lewis in the News. Okay, here's another studio expose. One of the great punk rock guitar solos can be heard in the Ramones song, I Want to Be Sedated. Now, punk rock was all about minimalism. Elaborate solos were, as a rule, discouraged. If the guitarist felt the need to step out and show his or her chops, then it had better not be show-off-y like, uh, you know, that bloody Led Zeppelin stuff. So when everyone heard Johnny Ramone bust out that elegant one-note solo in I Want to Be Sedated, people were impressed. It was one of the most famous solos in the history of punk rock. But what if I were to tell you that Johnny wasn't the person playing that bit? The early Ramones records were produced by a guy named Ed Stasium, who was a fan of big, thick guitars. The more albums the Ramones made, the more layer the guitar tracks became. And by the time they got to Road to Ruin in the summer of 1978, the Ramones' guitar sound was really nice and fat and thick. One of the most thickly layered Ramones songs to that point was I Want to Be Sedated. Now, Johnny does play most of the parts, although Ed got in there himself with his Fender Stratocaster. Now, listen to this very carefully. Johnny does most of the heavy strumming, but producer Ed Stasium is in there playing that muted dit-dit-dit rhythm, okay? And here it comes. When we get to that famous one-note solo, it's not Johnny. It's Ed. The Ramones, and I want to be sedated, complete with that famous one-note guitar solo. Not played by Johnny Ramone, but played by then-producer Ed Stasium. Now, while we're shattering illusions about the Ramones, let me give you two more. Johnny Ramone was a hardcore Republican. As politics go, he was about the most conservative punk rocker you could find anywhere. He absolutely worshipped Ronald Reagan. 
And it drove him nuts when he had to play anti-Reagan songs written by Joey Ramone, songs like Bonzo Goes to Bitburg. Meanwhile, Joey, the archetypical punk, was actually a hardcore capitalist. In the years leading up to his death, he became very good at trading stocks over the Internet. He apparently amassed quite a little fortune by reading the Wall Street Journal, watching CNBC, and using his online trading account. So, Joey Ramone, day trader. Hey, you know, you get older and your priorities change, right? Okay, here's another example of that. Back in the 1970s, the Sex Pistols were the most extreme group the world had ever seen. They would do and say just about anything, and they didn't care what anyone thought. The more shocking and controversial, the better. The best example is probably the infamous Bill Grundy interview on December 1st, 1976. The Sex Pistols were last-second substitutes on this Oprah-like afternoon talk show. They showed up drunk and showed up surly, and, uh, well, it, it went like this. I am told that that group have received £40,000 from a record company. Doesn't that seem uh, to be slightly opposed to their anti-materialistic view of life? No, or... more to marry Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, tell me more about it. You're fucking spanking, haven't we? <laughs> I don't know, have you? Yeah, yeah. it's all gone. Really? Down yep. Really? Good lord. Now, oh, I want to know gosh. one thing. <laughs> what? Are you serious? Or are you just making me, no, trying to make gone. me laugh? Gone. Really? Yeah. No, but I mean about what you're doing. Oh, yeah. You, you are serious? Mm. Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, Browns have all died. Bears, really? Oh, what what, what, what are we saying, wonderful sir? Wonderful people. Are they? Oh, yes, they really turn us on. But they do. Well, <laughs> suppose they turn other people on. That's just their touch, really. It's what? Nothing, a rude word. Next question. No, no. What was the rude word? Was it really? Good heavens. You right, Oh, there. all right. So what about you girls behind? Right. Are you, uh. <laughs> Are you worried or are you just enjoying yourself? Enjoying myself. Are you? Yeah. Ah, that's what I thought you were doing. I always wanted to meet you. Did you really? Yeah. We'll meet afterwards, shall we? <laughs> you <laughs> dirty yeah. son. Yeah. You dirty <laughs> old man. Well, keep going, Chief. Keep going. <laughs> Go on, you've got another five you seconds. Take something outrageous. You dirty bastard. Go on, again. <laughs> you dirty f. What a clever <laughs> boy. What a f. Rotter. Well, that's it for tonight. <laughs> The other rocker, Abel, and I'm saying nothing else about him, will be back tomorrow. I'll be seeing you soon. I hope I'm not seeing you again. From me, though, good night. That was the Janet Jackson nipplegate scandal of its day. Imagine these, these filthy punks swearing on the telly. Still, it was the thing that turned the Sex Pistols from curiosities to national and international sensations. All right, but so what? On the set that day was Pistols bassist Glenn Matlock. He is now a middle-aged father of two, and he has gone on record as saying that he believes that swearing on television should be banned. Here's what he told a TV interviewer in early 2005. It's pathetic when people swear for the sake of it. Something ought to be done about it. He hates it when his children hear obscenities coming from the telly and thinks the government should step in and do something about it. So, there's Sex Pistols expose number one. At least one of the people who co-wrote this song has officially adopted the attitude of his parents. One more Sex Pistols expose before we move on. The aforementioned Glenn Matlock was the band's bass player. He was fired in 1977 for allegedly liking the Beatles. 
and apparently was a crime within the Pistols. His replacement was a fan who went by the name of Sid Vicious. Sid was drafted in the group because, A, it would look cool if a person could make that transformation from fan to band member, and B, Sid had this real punk rock look and attitude. Unfortunately, though, Sid lacked one qualification. He, he couldn't play the bass. But that was considered to be of secondary concern. When the Pistols went on their last ever tour, that awful trek through America in late 1977, Sid appeared on stage, but he didn't play a note. Roadies were under instructions to unplug him. Another guy stood behind the amps and played Sid's bass parts. And to everyone's knowledge, poor Sidney never did catch on. This explains why recordings like this feature a bass part while the corresponding video shows Sid stalking about the stage, not even pretending to play. Here are the Pistols, their last ever original show at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco on January 14, 1978. Any bass playing you hear was done behind the scenes. The Sex Pistols, live in San Francisco with Sid Vicious in body and spirit, but certainly not present musically. When we come back, more new rock exposés, including rumors of a joint recording session featuring Nirvana and Hole, and the real story behind a famous and allegedly live recording by Oasis. Welcome back to a show on exposing myths, digging behind the headlines, looking for the real truth, all that kind of stuff. Sorry for any disillusionment brought on so far, but, you know, at least you can still believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Right? Anyway, here, here's a good one involving Oasis. Everyone knows that they've made a career finding new ways to recycle old British music, especially the Beatles. This is why a live bonus track on the group's 1994 Cigarettes and Alcohol EP was of such great interest. It's Oasis performing I Am the Walrus at some place called The Cat House in Glasgow, Scotland in June of 1994. It was considered to be one of the finest examples of early live Oasis. The problem is that it was a hoax. How do I know? Because Noel Gallagher told me. I, I had heard that there's a real story behind the recording of I Am the Walrus. It's not as it appears on the record. It's not It's not from a gig at all. It's actually from... Uh, we got invited to play a Sony convention just before we signed to Creation. Because I think... At the time, Sony were um, uh, bankrolling creation, and I think they wanted to have a look at us. So we went up there, and we were, that uh, that was actually recorded in the sound check for the Sony convention in Glen Eagles Hotel in uh, would have been 1993, and uh, we were all very, very, very drunk. But we didn't want to put that it was recorded in a Sony convention because that wouldn't look cool. So we we decided we would lie and put it was done in Glasgow, which is far cooler. But we did own up to it on the Master Plan album. We did say where it was from. And where did, where did the crowd noises come from? Well, we nicked that off uh, an Eric Clapton or the Faces bootleg from the Roundhouse in about 1973. So if you were at that gig, I, I assume I would be sued. Oasis, really not live at all. That's the infamously doctored I Am The Walrus recording from 1994. Now, Oasis did play 
the cat house on that night in June of 1994 as part of a seminar for executives at Sony Records, but there was no one there. Let's move on to this. From the moment Hole released their Live Through This album in April of 1994, there have been suspicions and accusations that Courtney had substantial help from her husband when it came to writing the songs. Now, this is not unreasonable. Let's face it. A man and a wife, both musicians, living in the same house, you think that they'd bounce ideas off one another? Of course they would. Now, does this mean that Kurt may have given Courtney some advice on the songs that she was preparing for Live Through This? Probably. But does it mean that he wrote the album for her? Not necessarily. Still, the Anti-Courtney Brigade will point to one particular recording that they insist is a smoking gun. This dates back to a series of studio sessions in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, between January 19th and 22nd of 1993. Nirvana was between festivals in South America and decided to book some studio time to work out some new ideas for the next record. Courtney was along for the ride, and so was Patti Schemmel, Hole's drummer. Over those four days, about a dozen songs were committed to tape, some of which eventually ended up on Nirvana's In Utero album. All right, so all three members of Nirvana are in the studio, and Courtney's there too, but she only has her drummer. What are the chances? Let me just ask you this. What are the chances of an actual Nirvana whole collaborative venture in this particular situation? I would say it's pretty good. I mean, it's fairly reasonable, that kind of assumption. The problem is the absence of solid proof. Or is there? In 1997, Hole released a compilation of outtakes and demos called My Body, The Hand Grenade. The CD features a version of Miss World, one of the songs from Live Through This. The liner notes say that this recording was made in Rio between January 19th and 22nd of 1993. Unfortunately, none of the players or collaborators are listed. It is rumored, however, that Kurt plays guitar and or bass on this recording. I mean, she had her drummer, but her bass player wasn't there. Where did the bass parts come from? Have a listen. Is this Kurt and Courtney working together professionally? You know what? I'd kind of bet on it. No one can hear me, my friends. A demo version of Hole's Miss World, which may feature... Kurt Cobain on guitar and or bass. Want a little more evidence of collaboration? Check this out. It's a recording of Undetermined Vintage. It's Courtney and Kurt from an unreleased version of Asking For It. Courtney Love with Kurt Cobain in the background. Is this evidence that Kurt helped Courtney write her breakthrough album, Live Through This? Can't say. All right, let's move on to this final story about U2's alleged near collaboration with a hair metal guitarist from the 80s. Suspend your belief and get ready to swallow this one or not. Hang on. Welcome back to the show on New Rock Exposés. We're blowing the lid off the big stories that have been, until now, suppressed by the liberal media and the military-industrial complex or something like that. Now, I'm going to caution you about this final story. This, it has an odor about it, if you know what I mean. It's the kind of expose that you might read about in the, you know, the weekly world news, but it's, it's just too much fun not to mention. 
So I'm going to present some uncorroborated and circumstantial evidence, and uh, you can believe what you want, okay? C.C. DeVille was the guitarist for Poison. If you know your hair metal, you'll know his work. You got that? There is a story that back in the early 1990s, U2 contacted C.C. DeVille about being their backup guitarist. He was asked about playing on the Octung Baby album and on the subsequent Zoo TV tour. Word is that he was flattered, but he turned down the offer because he, quote, did not want to compromise his musical integrity. According to this rumor, however, the inspiration for three songs on Octung Baby can be traced back to this Poison song featuring C.C. DeVille. And give me something to believe in. There's a Lord above. I give me something to believe in. Oh, Lord, arise. Here is an alleged quote from Bono. Its deep, meaningful lyrics made me work harder to sharpen my vocal skills. CeCe's work ranks right up there with Clapton, Hendrix, and Page. I first heard of him after Poison released their first album. My personal favorite pieces of CeCe's work include Unskinny Bop and Fallen Angel. CeCe can make his guitar sing like no other player today. His work is an inspiration. Here is more, allegedly from The Edge. Most people don't know this. It was Poison that inspired us to dress in drag for the Octung Baby photos and the One video. Oh, and I have more. According to this rumor, U2 and C.C. DeVille did collaborate on one song. It says here, in this uh, secret document, that he played lead guitar on the song Mysterious Ways, but he did not receive credit, lest that ruin his image. Now, how do we know all about this? Well, I'm glad you asked. The story concludes that the singer of Poison ratted on his guitarist. Quote, I wanted to make sure that his fans knew that he hung around with a bunch of no-talent wussies. Is uh, any, anybody buying this? No, no, really, come on. Is, is anybody buying this? You two from Octung Baby, Mysterious Ways, which allegedly, allegedly, features lead guitar work from Poison guitarist Cece Deville. Hope you enjoyed this explosive investigative journalism. Yeah, pretty good. I said that with a straight face. In all honesty, I, I, I love this stuff. We we tend to treat music and musicians with reverence or even outright worship. The truth is, though. These people are human beings, like everybody else, with faults and shortcomings. And the idea here is not to laugh and point, but to simply strip away some of the facades surrounding what they do and say and play. There's something magical about knowing the real story behind a song or a person or a band or, or whatever, right? You know, we, we, we got to do this again. If you have an issue regarding a particular rumor or unanswered question or controversy, shoot me an email. I, I, I'll compile a fresh list and we'll revisit this topic in the future. Oh, but before you ask, yes, Michael Stipe admits to being gay, Liam Gallagher has had children with several different women, and Beck is a Scientologist. If you need the gory details, let me know, and we'll make that all part of the next show. If, of course, these secret societies don't get to me first. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. 
You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.